The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, well, this time you're not going to need to run. You can drive with the Game Changers. Ooh, this is Future of Business. If you're keeping track, we are at Season 3, Episode 3. Shout out to David Fowler, who is our sponsor at SAP. Okay, let's get going. The buzz today, beep, beep. Or beep, beep, we'll be talking about that. Here's here's what we're going to talk about. The evolution, or perhaps you like to think of it as the revolution, of the connectivity of our vehicles is not new. It dates all the way back to, wait for it, the first factory-installed car radio. I had to look this one up, and here's what I found. Anybody has different trivia, tell me at hashtag SAP radio. I found it was Chevrolet 1922. The radio cost $200. That was a whopping amount of money. The antenna covered the entire car roof and the batteries were so big they barely fit under the front seat. If the car had a front seat. Well, here we are fast forward so many years later, my goodness, and the future is definitely connected. Uh, according to David Fowler, we may be starting on the curve of a hockey stick with endless possibilities for connectivity in our vehicles. Well, it's hard to argue with the long-term value of driverless cars. Did somebody say driverless cars? I think we have a lot to to talk about here. The biggest gains of applying the emerging technology may come with a commercial vehicle. That's right, not one that you and I are likely to have parked at our garages. What and when can businesses and consumers realistically expect? This is such a big topic. We've got such a great panel of experts here with us today to help us figure it out. Beep, beep, let me bring on my friend. I'm going to say that during the whole show. Uh, first up is John Ellis. He's a former global technologist for the Ford Connected Car Business. And John sent me a quote from Anne Rand, and we had a big discussion on whether to pronounce it Anne or Ayn, A-Y-N, so I'll give you both. She was a Russian-American novelist, philosopher, playwright, screenwriter, known for two best-selling novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And here's the quote. You can avoid reality but you cannot avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. I think that's a tautology, a circular reasoning. John Ellis, welcome. How are you today? I'm very fine. Good morning, Bonnie, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, delighted. Talk to me. You come from the car business. You know a lot about this, but let's first talk about how how you got Ann Rand on the show with you. What does her quote have to do with our topic? 
So uh, go back in time, just like you went back into the 1920s with the very first car radio. Uh, as part of my bio, you do recognize I was with Motorola as well. And what folks might not know is the name Motorola is a combination of motor for car and Ola for Victrola, i.e. the car radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very first successful company to bring a car radio out, there were many radios out, but it occurred in the 19, early 1930s, actually a demonstrable business that could then sustain itself, which was Motorola. Today, fast forward, and they don't exist. They're gone. They, mm-hmm. they avoided reality, which was the coming of software, the impending movement of software and sort of connectivity into devices. And so uh, I, just, I, it's, I use that quote always to just remind people that where you're at today is not necessarily where you might be at tomorrow. So you have two choices, put your head in the sand and avoid it or think you avoid it or grasp it by its horns and, and help direct it. Very interesting. Good perspective to open our conversation. John, just briefly, Ford Connected Car Business, what year were you involved there, and and what was the status of connected cars at that point in time? Um, it was the Connected Car Business Unit, and it was it used the word connected broadly, which we're gonna. I know Joe and, and others have an opinion. We'll talk a little bit about. Uh, but it was a Connected Car Business Unit, um, and a global technologist. It was from uh, 2011 until uh, 2014, uh, and I came in as a as a basically from the software side to try and bring software strategies that had been employed by companies like Motorola uh, into this sort of connected vehicle. And so some of the things we delivered were how you could integrate your handset into it. So how do you bring in that early form of connectivity, and then begin to manage that device correctly and properly while allowing customers to keep their hands on the wheel, eyes on the road. Um, so the state was pretty interesting. Sync was out. Uh, they were expanding it. Um, they were in the lead. Uh, Google and, and Apple weren't even uh, even around. Uh, you know, Sync was Sync was dominating. Uh, and today, now we see where Google and Apple are, are coming in. So uh, a lot of good challenges. I like to think that uh, that Ford sort of showed people the future, and uh, and everyone agreed to it. And now we're we're racing forward. It's kind of interesting. Thank you. John, very interesting, and I don't know if you just, if you're aware, you may be, that you just re- spoke the words from an old rock and roll song. Do you know what you just quoted? Do you remember? Uh, uh, you know, I'm young, so I don't know. Okay, no, well, I'm just going to go back in time. <laughs> Seven little girls sitting in the back seat. I know Dave Fowler may remember this. I just Googled the lyrics. It's, it's uh, seven little girls sitting in the back seat, hugging and kissing with Fred. I said, why don't one of you come up and sit beside me? And this is what the seven girls said. Keep your mind on your driving. Keep your hands on the wheel. Keep your snoopy eyes on the road ahead. We're having fun sitting in the back seat, kissing and hugging with Fred. I'll leave that one alone. So you just basically read the li- well, John, you have been educated, and I've been demoted probably. Uh, Dave, Dave said no idea. Okay, thank you very much, John. Good opening. Too much fun here. Let's bring on our second panelist. He is no stranger to SAP Game Changers Radio. It's Joe Barkai, who's an industry analyst. And Joe has brought me a very interesting quote from Marianne Williamson. Let's give a little trivia here. Marianne Deborah Williamson is an American spiritual teacher, author, and lecturer. She has published 10 books, including four that made the New York Times number one bestseller list. Woohoo! Here's the quote. When an idea reaches critical mass, there is no stopping the shift its presence will induce. Induce me, Joe Barkai. How are you? Welcome back. Hi, good morning, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Delighted. Talk to me. Interesting quote from Marianne Williamson. How did she get on the, on the show? Well, um, she got on the on the show just because of the quote, not so much her spiritual um, leadership, although I found out later after I kind of picked her quotation that uh, there is kind of a funny and indirect connection to the automotive industry. She was for a while a pastor in Warren, Michigan, where, which is where GM's uh, technical center is. 
but that's the only connection to uh, to the automotive industry. Okay. The, the, the reason why I chose her quote, and in fact, I would like to change it a little bit and say, when a technology reaches critical mass, there is no stopping the shift yeah, its presence yeah, will induce. And this really goes back to a point we, we discussed previously, Bonnie. Remember the quote that we discussed last time where I quoted John Wooden to say, don't mistake activity with achievement? So mm-hmm. I'm really trying to understand why is the... Uh, level of adoption uh, or the reaction to connected cars is somewhat tepid. We're not seeing huge um, adoption. We're seeing more concerns about uh, privacy and security and hacking into cars and so on. So I'm trying to really understand what, I- what are the issues around connected cars and what would drive adoption going forward. And when you think about it, the, the promise of connected car is in, well, in the connectivity or the connectedness between many cars and between cars and infrastructure. So mm-hmm. we can connect cars to traffic lights, uh, air quality monitoring, toll charging locations, which, by the way, will dynamically change the tolls based on traffic and air quality, mm. uh, and, and centralized traffic management systems. So the value is really being able to connect all of those things, but until we have enough cars connected to each other and to the infrastructure, we're not, not going to be able to get the value of this. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg discussion. What mm-hmm. will drive enough adoption so we can get the value we're looking for. And therefore, I chose this uh, quotation. In a way, just a quick comment on that. If you go yeah. back to Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm and how technology evolves, all of a sudden there's a new angle. It's not contradictory, of course, to, to Crossing the Chasm, but it's a new angle. It's not, not enough to have a good product the market wants. We need to have enough products to get the value for which the product was designed. So it's a bit circular. Thank you, Joe. Very interesting perspective as well. And and in my opening, I said the biggest gains of applying this emerging technology may come with the commercial vehicle. Do you believe that's where we're going to get the first level of reaching critical mass with commercial vehicles, or do you think it'll be personal vehicles? No, I think that it will absolutely be commercial vehicle, and it should be. Uh, In fact, the commercial vehicle industry is making progress, and we kind of in the mainstream um, don't always see that. A lot of these breathless headlines about connected cars and so on, um, miss the point. We are seeing commercial truck manufacturing companies. We see fleet owners benefit from connected cars or connected trucks and connected commercial vehicles. So in my view, this is a great opportunity to expand the value, uh, drive more volume of adoption, thereby uh, lowering the cost of technology, uh, maybe dispelling some of the myths. Maybe they're not myths. Maybe they're truth about um, cars being hacked and so on, so we can mature the technology and the business value much sooner and easier than in passenger cars. I think we're missing a point by not looking at the commercial vehicle industry. Thank you, and that's what we're going to be focusing on. Thank you very much, Joe, and welcome back again. And let me introduce our third panelist. It's Larry Stoley. No, not the drink. It's S-T-O-L-L-E, and he is a Senior Director of Global Marketing for the Automotive Industry at SAP, and he has sent me a quote from Mark Twain. My goodness, anybody hiding under a rock doesn't know who Mark Twain is? Well, just to refresh you, that's the pen name of Samuel Langhorne Clemens, American author and humorist who wrote The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and it's sequel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and I think think that was uh, named, considered the great American novel, but I digress. Here's the quote. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. Very interesting. Larry Stoley, welcome to Future of Business with Game Changers. How are you? I am fine. Good morning. 
Good morning. Talk to me. Interesting Mark Twain quote. Mark Twain had a, had a way with words that, that has always intrigued me. And, and this particular quote I find very applicable to, to the automotive business these days. You have to understand that I grew up in the automotive business 45 years ago when I got started. So I've seen a lot, done a lot, made a lot of mistakes, and um, wondered about them for a, lot, for a lot of time. So you look at this quote from Mark Twain, and what he says is, when there's a groundswell, when there is a tremendous pressure to do something it's time to take a look and say is this the right thing to do and i will just add a little twist to the quote um time to pause and reflect and pause and reflect means ask are people wanting what we're doing we have a tremendous push right now to connect vehicles we have all the associated complexities of connecting vehicles from user interfaces to technologies that's in the vehicle that people don't use and many times don't know about. So, so we have to ask ourselves, are we doing the right thing? And more importantly, we have to ask our customers, what do you want? And what we really find in many cases is that we're doing things because everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Does my customer really want this particular piece of technology across the board, meaning every customer wants it? There are some things that are like that, certainly. And then the question is, does everybody want this? There are other answers that say, well, no, this 10% wants it or that 5% wants it. So all of a sudden the technology is in there to please 5%, 10%, 20% of the population. So, you know, we really have to t- take a look and say, okay, what, what are the important things to do well, to do really well that serve everyone in the business? And and this is where you where you go back to the the question you asked Joe, commercial vehicles. There, it's a much simpler question to answer. Do we need to reflect? Certainly. Is the reflection that we need to do much more limited or much more powerful? Absolutely. So, that, to me, this this is this is really the way to sum up what I'm seeing in the industry today. We're doing things because everybody else does it because it's we're capable of doing it. Is it the right thing to do? Thank you very much, Larry Stoley. Also, good perspective on our topic. Let me circle back to John Ellis, who opened the discussion. John, I have a very tough question for you, nothing to do with cars, but you might have a cup holder in your vehicle. I might even ask the three of you what you drive. What do you drive and what are you drinking right now? Let's put it that way, and I hope you're not in a car somewhere. So, John Ellis, since, since Future Business with Game Changers is part of our bigger, bigger mama series, Coffee Break with Game, and I'm the mama, Coffee Break with Game changers i ask everybody what are you drinking right now or what's a favorite beverage store you'd Uh, like to share so john ellis what do you drive and what do you like to drink okay big mama i drive a toyota camry uh 2011 with a heavily modified uh head unit software that uh that i've uh that i've customized uh and at the moment no i'm not driving that but i am uh, i'm in my home office drinking a, a cup of dunkin donuts joe some fantastic for me the most favorite coffee in the world dunkin donuts that's lovely does it have a flavor does it would you order just no, hey it, i need a it, cup it, of no, what is I it go in, it's an extra large cream and sugar a little extra sugar that's the order simple sweet mm, right to the point nice is that whatever they have in the in the hot pot there or is there is there a uh, flavor it's always to a dark, it the, the, uh, the dunkin uh, house blends a dark roast that's what i wanted to know thank you very much john ellis sounds good joe barkai what are you driving what do you drink i never said it that way before yeah no you never did 
So on your show, I need to make sure that I have enough coffee before the show, so I am alert and being able to respond to you and enough water to speak through, and I actually have water. Actually, I, I want to talk about a previous car, one of my earlier, I've been driving Audis for many years. One of the early Audi cars had such a bad cup holder because the German engineers, I want to reflect back on what Larry said, what do we need and what customers want and how we, we, we make them. Lousy cup holders will not hold anything, you know, any, any reasonable speed. So that, that's the same. But you know, since I think that we are a little bit on a history show uh, today, we talk about the history, uh, can I take us a little bit back to the 18th century talking about coffee? Please do. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in the previous shows, we had um, coffee, um, international coffee perspective. If you recall, we talked about Vietnam, then I talked about Israel, and so on. So keeping this international perspective, but again, I want to go back to the 18th century. At that time, coffee was really regarded as danger, dangerous kind of societal vice, especially when it included women drinking coffee. It was absolutely in, inappropriate to drink coffee. Oh. So oh. I, I found out that actually John Sebastian Bach, uh, not only was uh, a good composer uh, and very successful at the time, he was a coffee aficionado and, turned out, also had a pretty good um, sense of humor. So in 1732, 18th century, he composed an opera called The, the Coffee Cantata, uh, mm. in which heroine says something along the lines of, if I can't drink my little cup of coffee three times a day, then I would become so upset that I would shrivel up like dried piece of roast goat. <laughs> you know, that's German imagery, I guess. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I guess yeah. you never thought that we'll have guests on the show talking about or reciting 18th century German opera. But Oh, no, no, no. I have to tell you, uh, Joe, I just looked it up. Of course, you know, I love to yes, Google things while we're on the air. Coffee Cantata is about a young, vivacious woman named Aria, A-R-I-A, who loves coffee. Her killjoy father is, of course, dead sent against his daughter having any kind of caffeinated fun. So he tries to <clears> ban <throat> her from the drink, and she bitterly complains. Father, sir, be not... But do not be so harsh. If I couldn't three times a day be allowed to drink my little cup of coffee in my anguish, I will turn into a shriveled up roast goat. How sweet coffee tastes. More than delicious than a thousand kisses. Oh my, and it goes on and on. Beautiful reference, Joe. Thank you very much. And thanks to Bach for writing such an interesting story <laughs> and interesting words. Joe Barca, you never, never cease to amaze me. Thank you. Larry Stoley, the pressure is on you. Yeah, can you top those two stories? I don't know. Larry, well, what are you drinking, or what do you drive? The, the interesting thing for me is going third behind these two gentlemen. It's always beautiful to do that because I learned a couple of things. First off, what I drink is plain old Folgers coffee, nothing fancy. I was taught long ago uh, in my formative years that you drink coffee, black, nothing in it. That's the way coffee is made to be drunk, and that's the way I do it today. So I've traveled all over the world, and I've drank coffee in various locales. I drink it black. I drink it strong. I drink it weak. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is Folgers. What do I drive? I drive a, a GMC pickup. I drive a GMC pickup with the, the biggest engine, with the most horsepower, and the most torque that I can possibly get because I'm a car guy. All right. So the interesting thing about Joe is he talked about Audi cup holders. Well, what I was saying about going third is I used to work for the manufacturer, Audi, back in the days when we were having these discussions about cup holders. <clears throat> Germans oh, always know best. Fun. Germans always know best. So Joe is out of line. Anyway, the, yeah. the bottom line was <laughs> uh, we uh, finally got our act together and listened and, and put some uh, cup holders in there that actually worked. 
The other thing I'll, I'll close on is I am not convinced, and you cannot prove by me, that there is such a thing as caffeine. I unfortunately well, hold, hold on, hold on there. Those are fighting <laughs> words. What do you mean you're not convinced? What do you call it? Do you have another name for that, no, that kick I, thing? I, it, that... I, you know, the, the more coffee I drink, doesn't bother me. The less coffee I drink, doesn't bother me. I'm not convinced there's such a thing as caffeine. There is no way to prove it by my actions. I bet there was in the early days when you first started drinking coffee, and I bet you've just become so uh, accustomed to it that it's just one of the drugs in your system. Oh, I didn't say that. Very possible, because when I was at at a dealership one time, uh, one of the office people accused me of drinking four pots of coffee myself during the day. And that that was not because I like coffee, but I had a ha- hand that wasn't doing anything. I needed something to do with that, that left hand, and that was a coffee cup. Well, welcome to the John, Joe, and Larry show, and I'm Bonnie. Glad to host this. We're into cars, we're into coffee, and we're into beep, beep. Guess what? We're going to take a break just because I need a cup of something. But I'll tell you, Larry, Joe, and John, they don't let me have caffeine and Larry, just deal with this, okay? They don't let me have caffeine on radio show days because I still get a little kick out of it, and I don't need an extra kick on the radio. They let me have water, but today I have a beautiful yellow straw in my cup of water. So there you go. It's a celebration day. Guess what? Our topic today, in case you haven't guessed already, is the connected car take two. Yeah, we're revisiting this. The race to the perfect connected car vehicle. lot to talk about. Great panel. We're having way too much fun. When we come back, we'll go beep, beep a little bit more with John Ellis, former Ford Connected Car Business Global Technologist and now just Connected Car Guru, Joe Barkai, industry analyst with great stories and a lot of history and cantatas from Bach and Larry Stoley, who doesn't think caffeine exists. That's a whole other show, Larry. Contact Dave Fowler and ask him if he can get an extra date on the editorial calendar to talk about caffeine or not with you. Uh, I'm Bonnie D. Graham. I plan to stay that way after the break. I'm not sure what I'm going to bring drink after the break, but we'll, we'll see when we come back. So the connected car take two, the race to the perfect connected vehicle. We have a lot more to discuss. We'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. However you're listening, stick around. Bread out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as business simplification, insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, business networks and supply chains, and the ever-present need for speed are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP Services. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to The Future of Business with Game Changers. 
Here we are, and the future is the connected car, the race to the perfect connected car. Of course, we love perfection in everything we do, and maybe by the end of this show, we will be able to achieve that. I'm speaking today with John Ellis, Ford Connected Car Business, Global Technologist and Guru, Joe Barkai, Industry Analyst, and Larry Stoley at the Automotive Industry for SAP. And let's get started with our 30-minute nonstop roundtable. Yeah, we have about 30 minutes for this. John Ellis, I'm looking at your notes you sent me before the show, and let's get down to some serious business here. Uh, let's start with your first topic, operator license versus driver license. And you mm. told me, due to increasing accidents and deaths, and this is serious, on U.S. roads, Chicago and New York introduced the first driver license regimes into the U.S. back in, well, here we go again with an 1800 reference, 1899, just squeaked it in before the turn of the century. Since then, all states have adopted a testing regime in rules of the road. John, why don't you take us through a little history, and, and let's tie it to our topic today on the perfect connected vehicle. Go ahead, John Ellis. Sure. So, um the, the 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 timing is is just perfect. We um, the the thought process, right? As we as we contemplate, and I, in fact, I was listening very much to to your previous show from the from the couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thought process that has come over time is we're, as we move this path towards connectivity, whether it's just standard you know radio connectivity or if it's safety connectivity, um, we're adding more complexity to the vehicle. We're adding things to the vehicle. Um, and a, a little anecdotal story came came forward. A, a friend of mine is a writer for Fast Company. Um, we were talking about this, and he did a test with his aunt, took her out in a car, and turned on all the high-tech technology that was in there, including the lane-keeping and lane-departure warning systems. These are systems that note when you're going to go past line markers, and they you know, do some haptic feedback response. Well, in this particular car, uh, his aunt's driving at over 60-something you know, miles an hour on the expressway, mm-hmm. and this particular car manufacturer used a haptic that vibrated her seat. So instead of doing the thing that it was intended to do, which is to warn her that she was leaving a lane, it instead caused mm-hmm. her to you know, shriek an expletive, take her hands off the wheel, slam the <laughs> accelerator down, and basically take the car almost into the, 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 the sidebar. So um, it started bringing up some, some, some issues here. Or if you look at people in rental cars, right, how many people yeah. can't find the uh, hazard lights or whatnot. So the, right. the idea that has been percolating, and, I, and I've written about it in the past, is is it time that we teach people how to drive rules of the road, right, turn left, turn right, rules, you know, who has precedence, and then actually require you to have an operator license? And it's actually becoming more pressing of a cash question if some of the DMVs have their way today in the autonomy conversation where they're expecting cars to be able to be returned back to human drivers at split-second moments when there's decisions that have to be made. So, again, can you imagine being in a car that you don't understand, don't know about, have never been in before, and all of a sudden it's going to return control to you and, and you don't know what's going on? So it's that kind of mentality. So, again, if it's good enough for airline pilots, which it is today, maybe it's mm-hmm. good enough for our drivers. John, let's segue, <clears throat> excuse me, let's segue into your second topic before we bring Joe and Larry into the conversation. Connected vehicle certification training. Since we're on yeah. the topic of rules and certification and do you really know what that instrumentation panel in front of you has to offer you and what you should do with those controls and where they are, when to use. Right. Huge. I think this is a whole separate show, but, but I digress. Let's talk about connected vehicle certification training. You say by 2020, I think I'm missing a number here in the year, but it looks like 2020, it's estimated that over 60% of the vehicles sold in the U.S. will have an embedded modem. Talk to me. How do we get this connected certification training? Um, yeah, so uh, in, in recognition of that, there's a, uh, there's a growing awareness that there's a disconnect between the wireless carriers and, and, the, and the OEMs, right? They have different languages. They, they talk about different things. They, they, they just deal separately between their industries. 
Uh, and so in recognition of that, um, there, there was a need, and uh, it was filled by a collective group of people from Michigan, Mobile Compliance to Training Organization, uh, CVTA, Connected Vehicle Trade Association, uh, under the guise of the SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers, put together a Connected Vehicle Professional Training Program. And it was intended to teach both wireless carriers and, uh, and automotive OEMs the language of both camps, the technology with respect to both camps, and to basically raise the, the level of, of competency in both industries so that they could deliver the, 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 most, the most safe, or the safest, I should say, mm-hmm. the safest and the most enjoyable connected vehicle experience for, for, for what now is becoming a shared customer base between a wireless carrier customer and an automotive customer. Uh, it was launched a couple months ago, and uh, we're starting to educate people, and, and a lot of people are starting to hear about it. In fact, recently at the telematics update, it was, it was talked about, and a lot of people are saying, oh, wow, there's training available. That'd be great, because, quite frankly, wireless is mysterious for people. They just pick up a phone, and it just mm-hmm. works. The wireless industry has done a great job. It just works. Yet people don't understand how it works, and that's the mystery. <clears throat> that's a mystery, and that might be the joy because they don't have to know too much. Joe Barkai, we'd love to have you join the conversation. Anything of the above we talked about, what are your thoughts? Yep, uh, so I absolutely agree with the observations. Uh, in fact, I think that in the very near future, all cars, cars will have connectivity, so this becomes almost a commodity. Um, I think that the, the biggest challenge we face today is that car OEMs, car makers, really focus on, on what we really honestly might consider to be just bells and whistles. Um, I actually had a number of discussions on trying to assess where with the OEMs and trying to assess where they're heading, where, how they feel they can compete, provide value, because it's all about the value to the consumer. And it seems to be all about fancy dashboards and, and different colors, all these kind of um, haptic devices and so on. The problem is there are no standards, there are no um, common approaches or practices, so therefore there are long learning curves, therefore there's the risk that John just mentioned. And in, in a funny way, it reminds me, French cars like in the 50s and 60s, where none of the controls, even the, the turn signal, were in the right where you expect it, because they, again, that, now we say Germans think they know better than we used to say French think they know better. We definitely need standards and, and common approaches to those kind of mechanisms. Uh, having said that, I'm not 100% sure that I agree with the need for yet another certification. I think that the example mm-hmm. of uh, commercial pilots um, is interesting, but it's, like I said, it's, they, are commercial, they are commercial operators. So in this regard, maybe they do need uh, specific training and certification. But as we move more towards autonomous cars and therefore much more kind of significantly safer cars, maybe mm-hmm. the requirements for operator actually be, can be lessened rather than increased. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and think about the fact that uh, as we have more capable cars and, and autonomous cars or semi-autonomous cars, we will offer people with disabilities so many more opportunities. Uh, and therefore, again, it goes back to having devices that anyone, anyone can operate, anyone can understand. They are safe, they are reliable, um, but I'm not totally on board with the notion of yet another uh, certification level. Well, let's get Larry Stoley's opinion in here. Larry, waiting in the wings, talk to us. Well, for, you know, for me, what it comes down to really is responsibility. I mean, what John is saying is be responsible, know what you've got, know the rules of the road, and also know the rules of your vehicle, know how to operate it, be certified to operate it, and so on. Part of me is a very strong proponent of that because I believe in responsibility. Mm-hmm. You're responsible for your vehicle when it's moving, and that's just the way it is. 
And, you know, we talk about vibrating seats and, and the reaction, ooh, my gosh, you know, what is that, and so on and so forth. You, you, ha- you have to know what that technology is, what it's telling you, and how you react to it. The notion of, of turning operational responsibility from an autonomous system back to uh, a human in split seconds is just absolutely obscene to me. Many, many of the people, uh, companies who are developing technologies here use that uh, buzzword. The human can take it back at any time. But I will tell you that if you're disengaged from operating the vehicle, you're disengaged from responsibility, you cannot instantaneously process a situation, determine the necessary action to take, and take effective control of that vehicle. So for me, I tend to lean a little bit to what John said. There certainly should be some thought, some conversation, some dialogue about, wait a minute, it's not left turn, right turn, stop sign, and so on and so forth. It's a whole lot more than that these days, and it's becoming more and more complex every day. But it all comes back to me for responsibility. Interesting. John Ellis, this was your topic. You started it. You want to comment on Joe and Larry? Talk to me. Talk to them. I'm a huge individualist. I I completely agree with Larry, right? It is individual responsibility. But the problem is that that responsibility stops the minute I take my private vehicle onto a public road. I mean, there's stats from USDOT on crashes caused by distraction. Over 80% of the crashes that uh, occur on U.S. highways occur could have been could have been avoided by by but they're claiming by safety technologies. I argue it's it's, it's by by understanding your vehicle, right? So mm-hmm. so I get I understand the individualism. I, I I completely weigh in on that, but at the same time, we are introducing technology into vehicles that people have. Have you ever tried to read a user manual, Larry? You know yourself. It's very difficult to read some of these things. And they're horrible. They're, it's hor- well, it's horrible, and they're not, they're not intended to be instructive. They're intended to fill the check the box for legal purposes. They're not really instructive. So from that standpoint, I, I don't know where to end up on it. But, again, I use the airline pilot, and, and to, to Joe's point, you're right. It's a commercial pilot because they have other people in it, but it's the same thing. When I drive a car, I may have other people in it. I drive a car, I'm on public roadways. So I, I understand the individualism there, but with where we're going and – Again, if we were fully autonomous tomorrow, you're right, the entire license op- you know, conversation goes away. We'll get to that later in this conversation, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that's going to happen, at least for a good long period of time. And, yeah, and Larry, with I'll just there. Oh, we got a good conversation here. Larry, I heard you first. Go ahead, Larry. Yeah, I'll just jump in on that because I used to write or assist in writing owner's manuals, user manuals, and <laughs> guilty as charged. Yay! And in, fact, and in fact, that was the goal. Get it done, get it over with, pass it on. So, so that's absolutely true. The, you know, the, the single biggest reason that there are crashes on the road today, you're absolutely right, is people. You know, and autonomous mm-hmm. vehicles can certainly impact that very, very favorably, and they will. So, you know, on that, that topic, I completely agree with you. Okay. Joe, I heard you, Joe yep. Barkai, talk. In a way, we're not really disagreeing with each other. I want to add another com- part of the, you know, how we get to, to a situation where vehicles are safer and easier to operate, which is standards. As long as uh, OEMs think that they can compete on the basis of yet another feature that nobody understands, we'll have cars that are impossible to drive. And yes, once you learn your car, but then you rent a car and you have no idea where the indicators are, then, then right. we have a problem. So it's all about standardization. Yep. And a different topic, not for today, once we start doing that, that we really increase the level of reuse, reuse of technology, reuse of parts, reuse of designs, reuse of best practices to make cars safer and more reliable. 
but, but this industry is really not very good in reusing what it already knows. It always it's about the next thing versus let's see what we did well in the past, where we made mistakes, and how we improve. Uh, and in an indirect fashion, this also is part of why we have so many car recalls uh, recently, but that's, agree, a uh, different topic. And, and this is Bonnie. I want to make a comment about the purpose or my, my typical use of a, of an owner's manual of a car is after I get off the road, if I couldn't find a particular button to push or I couldn't find a particular function and I'm in a safe place, I will open the manual, usually in my own safety, in my own garage, in the car, and I will sit there and I say, okay, what exactly happened that I couldn't find or how do I replace this or what is this noise? And I'll just go on a search mission. I wish that the manual, I wish I had a Google, Googleized version of it. So I could scroll up and down digitally and not have to look through 150 pages of eight-point type with bad headers and bad chapter headings, but mm-hmm. eventually I'll try to find it. So to me, it's an after-the-fact, oops, what do I need to do or what did I need to do? So that's how I use the manual, which means very right. seldom. Let's move the conversation ahead. I want to move to some notes here from Joe Barkai. We have so much to talk about. I, I know that Dave Fowler is probably thinking we got to get these guys back for, for a part three. And by the way, I was remiss. I didn't tell all of you, uh, Dave Fowler today is drinking Starbucks. And where is it? It's in his full-size 2014 red Chevy Silverado. There we go. Now we know what Dave is drinking and what Dave Fowler is driving. Thank you very much, Dave. Okay, Joe Barkay, I'm looking at your notes here. Uh, you talk about the automotive industry is betting its future on new vehicle technologies. You're talking electronic propulsion, advanced infotainment, connected cars, and eventually what we've been talking about, autonomous driving. But what I'd like to talk about here is the privacy issue, Joe. I don't think we've covered it at all or enough. You say consumers concerned about privacy infringement, uh, rumors about hackable car software, and general distrust in cutting-edge vehicle technologies. These consumers are not standing in line to switch to modern connected vehicles. Do we need to change that, or are we going to say the future of connected vehicles and financial sustainability of that industry is still with the commercial vehicles? And what would those be? Buses? Would they be, I don't know, buses, trucks? Talk to me, Joe. What do you think? So as we said earlier, and I think Larry was very articulate about that, um, the, the value of connected cars and, and the data that cars communi- collect and communicate to, to, to the back office primarily, it's not in, there's not that much between, you know, among cars. The value there is very, very clear. So this is why we, we said earlier there's a um, higher level of adoption or understanding of the value, and therefore, in a way, it's easier for the consumer, the user, the, the driver operator, to sort of agree that there is potentially some some loss of, of privacy. I mean, I always, mm-hmm. you know, the, in the last 20 years, I have the opinion, there's no privacy anyway, so just get over it. Uh, <laughs> but most, most consumers don't really see it this way. So I, I think it's, it's really the balance between the concerns, you know, hackable cars, uh, data privacy, and so on, versus the value that connected car is giving me. So I would take your question, your, your kind of observation, and turn it um, and and say, where's the value? Do I see the value? Is the value mm-hmm. important enough to me so I'm willing to give up my privacy to some extent? Um, and Larry and I had a conversation a couple of days ago about the fact that many of these questions as related to privacy, as they relate to data ownership, who owns the data that the car produces? Uh, there are still many questions we don't understand. Uh, we don't have the answers to the questions we know, and there are so many questions we don't even know. And so the years to come will be very interesting to watch in terms of 
precedents and, and um, new laws and regulations, and many of things will probably go all the way up to the Supreme Court to understand that. But I'd like to suggest, as I said earlier, that perhaps we need to let this side evolve, uh, and it will evolve somewhat Darwinistically, uh, but look at the lessons learned from the commercial vehicle where the value is so much easier to, to prove. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, Larry, thoughts? Oh, you, you do. I jump on this one. I of mean, course. a few years ago at, at uh, uh, management briefing seminars up in Traverse City where most of the OEMs and some major suppliers attend, there was a conversation thread that tried to quantify the value of the data from a connected vehicle. And at the end of the conversation, it was said that there was about $1,400 U.S. per year worth of value that two years ago now could be derived from a connected vehicle. And they took that value and broke it into a very, uh, various subsets, if you will. So part of it was um, quality. Part of it was safety-related. Part of it was operational performance-related, operational efficiency, if you will. And a small part of it was commerce. I'll use the term commerce. I think it applies. So, mm-hmm. you know, connected parking, uh, navigation, uh, fueling, if you will, um, cellular connectivity, you know, another cell phone, if you will, uh, much like OnStar and so on. But anyway, when it broke that $1,400 uh, U.S. dollars up, only about 10% of that amount of money was in the commerce side, the infotainment side, 10%, $140, $150. The rest of it was value to the manufacturer. How can I improve my product? There was value to the customer. How can I predict? How can I take care of issues before they become problems and so on and so forth? And part of it was safety, and that also applies very, very strongly to a customer. So that was the value of the data. Now, you know, you get back to Joe's question, who owns that data? Well, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue about, okay, that's my data, that's my software in the car, OEM speaking now, uh, that's my data. And then customers are saying, oh, no, wait a minute, that's my data. And in fact, in in a number of uh, situations, that data from the onboard systems is used to do a number of things determine fault, determine liability, what was the throttle position, what was the braking going on when a crash occurred. Was there an occupant in the passenger seat, in fact, for this insurance claim? So, you know, we have a whole plethora of issues that we have to decide and understand around the whole notion of that data, its value, and who's going to realize that value. One other point that I want to make on the commercial vehicle side is... Mm -hmm. From a commercial vehicle side, it's very easy to understand and assign ROI. If I'm a manufacturer of a heavy truck, I can put technology in that truck. I can have the purchasers of my truck pay for that technology because I can subscribe and tell them how much value they can realize based upon the data if they're willing to take that data and use it effectively in collaboration Mm -hmm. with the truck manufacturer. On the other hand, with a car, all those other things that I was talking about, the $1,400 U.S. dollar value, is not clear to the customer. Therefore, it's a much harder sell to get the customer to realize and to value the technology outside their own little sphere of interest, if you will. John Ellis, thoughts? 
Um, yeah, no. So, so the report that Larry's referring to uh, came from Cisco. Uh, the fourteen hundred. I, I agree completely. Right, the fourteen hundred dollars is a is a pretty amorphous number. It's in terms of prognostication and all sorts of other value that you would hope that the ecosystem would then give back to the consumer. Um, but it kind of ties into the the, the new the, that next point that I had given you in our speaking points, which is the DMCA stuff, where the OEMs are now starting to very clearly state that you don't actually you own the hardware, but you don't own the software on your vehicle. Mm-hmm. If you don't own the software on the vehicle, um, do you really actually own the own the data? Does the customer actually own the data? Given that the software is what's generating the data, the hardware doesn't generate data; it's the software. John, John, let, let's let's expand this. I was just highlighting this talking point, and I wanted to bring this up, and I think it's a perfect segue. Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA. I have to read this statement from your notes because I want to expand what you just said, John. Vehicle manufacturers like GM and John Deere are citing a particularly strange and onerous provision in copyright law. Everybody listen up to claim that you need permission from them to tinker with to repair and to innovate around your own car. This isn't just software. This is the vehicle. I think Larry said he had a fully tricked out something he was driving. Did, did Larry violate DMCA copyright law by tricking out his car? John, tell Larry. <laughs> uh, depending on what the trick out was, yes, possibly he 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 did right. I mean, the the, the this recent this recent behavior, the recent publications by by some of the OEMs laying out sort of their 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 position. Uh, is causing people to to start saying, okay, wh- where do we go with this, and, and what happens? Um, and it goes back to if you don't own the software on the vehicle, do you actually own the data that the software generates? And mm-hmm. that's a really really open open question to debate. One of the unintended consequences of this. Um, and I don't think there is as clear an answer as maybe there was previous to the OEM saying that they uh, that they you know own the software. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But getting back to Larry's oh, no, original point, John, it, I is, believe a, this it is in fact an issue, right? Where, where does that data go, and who's, who owns it, and how does the customer actually talk about that value, and will the ecosystem give that value to the to the customer? I, I, there's so many questions open there that I'm not 100 percent sure where that real value equation is going to come from. But to Joe's Joe, Joe Barkai, Joe has something yeah. to add. I heard you, Joe. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. Well, my 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 rhetoric question to John was that, as far as I know. John Deere's claims and, and James and others, these were never tested. So this is an interesting um, opening position, but we don't really know what will ever happen uh, if this goes um, you know, to, to court or whatever. But we can really tie some of these discussions together uh, in a way that I think is, is, is very kind of illuminating as far as where, where we're heading. We, we talk about the, the value of... of um, of connected cars. We talk about the value of the data and the services that cars, commercial passenger cars provide. Um, but it's really not, it's not only amorphous the, to, to Larry's point, but it's really, it's competing in so many ways with similar product and services that a consumer can bring with her to the car on the cell phone, on a, mobile, on a smartphone. And this, again, I think is a point that most OEMs, as well as the carriers, and I, I, I think that we'll talk about the wireless carriers, carriers as well, they really miss the point. If they offer a service that appears to be competing with product and services I can get on my smartphone, uh, most likely better because it's more up-to-date, better user interface and so on. And, by the way, I already paid for it because I'm paying uh, for my phone to, to the same carrier. Um, why would I? Why, why would a consumer want to do that? Um, and and this is a great gap between the consumer spaces and how OEMs see it. Um, in many conversations and many of my writings, I talked about the consumer digital identity. What represents me 
is the one who consumes and sometimes produces data uh, to be used. Um, to all of us, our identity is our uh, smartphone, the mobile identity, uh, perhaps our login, but it's really not the vehicle um, serial number. And this is how the um, OEMs uh, see it, and this is how many of the service providers see it. You know, it takes satellite radio. Uh, it knows me because I drive my car that happens to have satellite radio, but I paid for it. Um, even though I paid for it, I cannot use the same content in my wife's car that does not have subscription. And that's, that's really a big gap uh, relative to how consumers want to consume information these days. It, so, so, Bonnie, the, the, I mean, you, yeah. the digital, it's, it's digitalized ecosystem, right? Every, I mean, I agree with Joe, right? We've made choices. You could be an Android. You could, you could be an Android ecosystem, not necessarily a Samsung phone, but an, it's an ecosystem. So it's Android ecosystem, iOS ecosystem. Uh, it could be an Alibaba from China, Baidu. It could be a Microsoft, right? There's many, many different ecosystems that people begin to associate. So I completely agree with Joe that the OEMs have missed that, right? They don't understand that. They're trying to create their own ecosystem, and quite frankly, if they're not careful, it, it, they almost become irrelevant because at some point in time, the person can say, I, I don't really care. I don't really care. It's a utility to get me from point A to point B, you know, and so I don't, I don't care. And you know what? Whatever happens, happens. I just want to get to point A to point B cheaply and safely. My data is my data because it comes through my identity, as Joe pointed out, right, my ecosystem. I'm comfortable. I'm in constant my ecosystem. So, yes, um, furthermore, it, it travels with you. So the same yes. identity, the same content travel, whether it's your car, a rental car, public transit. So it kind right. of transcends mo modalities in a seamless fashion. And this is how consumers, certainly the younger, more kind of digital-oriented consumers want to use information, and it cannot be broken by the, the serial number of the vehicle I happen to be in at the time. And I may be right. the driver or the passenger, same thing. Right. Yeah, and, you know, it's very important. Don't, don't make me be schizophrenic, right? Don't make me have two identities. Don't make me pay for two identities and so on and so forth. You see now uh, a tremendous move from Go with Google and with Apple into the, the operation of the vehicle, into the head unit and so on. So I, I think the... the OEMs, the manufacturers, if you will, are strongly driven to monetize the investment of the technology that they put in this vehicle. And I think that is a losing proposition over time. It's just not going to happen because the, the, the cellular identity, my personal identity, is so much further advanced and so stable compared to my ownership of a vehicle that it will win out in the long term. Okay, everyone, great conversation, but you know what? We are now at 50 minutes after, and that means we have seven minutes till the end of the show, and I know you're going to have major predictions. So <laughs> what I'd like to do is circle back to John Ellis, and John, I'm going to give you an entire two minutes, unprecedented in Game Changers oh, wow. Radio history. Holy cow. Well, in, in recent, oh, yeah, holy cow, holy car, <laughs> holy Silverado, Silverado, that's a reference for Dave Fowler. I'm going to give you two, two, two minutes. Uh, let's mm -hmm. fast forward the conversation. You can take it. I love the year 2020. Not everybody does. You want to take it to tomorrow afternoon or next week or Christmas 2017 or whatever mm -hmm. in the future. What will be different about this conversation? What will change? Give me your best predictions, John Ellis. Predictions, two minutes, go. Um, there is a future um, some, some, some time out where um, it will be just as strange if I were to stand up and say to you how many people own their car as if it were today when I stand on the stage and say, how many of you own a horse? And so um, that time is coming, and it is propelled by urbanization, folks moving into cities. It's propelled by the conversations we've had today and then the ones you had previously, autonomy and the ability to actually be able to get 
from point A to point B safely. Um, and it's also propelled by the, by the growing recognition or the growing acceptance that transportation is a utility. Uh, and so for those who like to own a car, they will still be able to, but it will, become a, it will become a hobby. It will become something you do out in the stables or out in the countryside. And transportation will become commoditized and used as a, as a networked entity that is then, then used and optimized. So um, for me, I, I, it might be in my lifetime, uh, but it's probably late in my lifetime. It's probably very much in the throes of my, my children who are, who are younger. Um, moving forward, um, as a, a little anecdotal story, I have, I have two twin girls. Uh, about two years ago, they were in the back of a, a, my, my wife's car. I was driving. I turned the radio on, and they heard uh, the last remnants of Katy Perry. They said, hey, mm-hmm. Dad, hit the back button. And I said, I, I can't. can't do that. Like, no, no, Dad, do this. We do this all the time with Mom. Just hit the back button. And we'll work. I said, guys, no, not, not in this car. You can't do that. Like, Dad, seriously, turn on Pandora, put in Katy Perry, and the song will come up. We know how to do this, Dad. I go, guys, I love you dearly. I only look stupid. We're in what's called a car with a radio, and in radio, you listen to what other people tell you to. They were very quiet for a moment, and then the first yes. twin said, well, that's stupid. And then the oh. second twin, like 20 seconds later, said, well, Daddy can fix it because he works with software, and I was so proud of her. Because in my car at the time, the Ford car, we had fixed it. We had brought in software. We had done yeah. this. So. This movement is coming. And so, again, in some future time, non-ownership will, in fact, be, I think, the norm for most people as it is today with horses. Thank you. Well, the horses and horsepower, I knew we'd get that in there somewhere. Thank you very much. Joe Barkai, exactly two minutes. Keep it tight. I'm going to give you 90 seconds, actually. 90 seconds predictions. Joe Barkai, you know the drill. Go. Yes, okay. So uh, not to reiterate what John was saying, uh, but I so agree with that thing. The, the landscape of car ownership and mobility would be so different because people will not uh, will move will be a mix of ownership of, of sharing like Zipcar pays for Uber. There are going to be fewer car owners. And to kind of add to the picture and stay on on, on the point, this is the is the beginning of a movement where urbanization actually changes how we use uh, mobility and how, even how we design cars. If you think about it, in the 50s, especially in the U.S., um, suburb, suburbs developed. Because we have we had large cars, cheap um, gasoline, good infrastructure, so everybody moved out. Now all of a sudden the out is in. We have congestion, air pollution, and so on. So we're back to we don't need a car, smaller cars. When did you think we'll have a you know smart car? Ten years ago you said Americans will drive a smart car. No way, and now we do. So that I would just want to echo uh, what uh, and, and agree and then add to maybe to, to John's observation and. Instead of going to yet a different area, I want to stay on a point we made earlier, uh, but also talk about the transition between now and, and 2020, perhaps, as we get to this point. I think that built-in connectivity is becoming a standard practice. All cars will have connectivity and to some extent. Uh, in addition, wireless connectivity is becoming a commodity. Everything is connected. Everybody has a wireless access. All cars can. And as long as wireless carriers continue to compete using kind of last century um, models that is, you know, based on, on how many subscribers we have and so on, they're going to lose the business. And I wrote this in, in a couple of articles on, on my predictions for 2020. So uh, we talked a lot about the OEMs. Carriers also have to be um, sensitive to where the industry is going or else they lose the business. Thank you very much, Joe. Larry Stoley, I saved you 90 seconds as well. Predictions, go. Thank you very much. First off, uh, with regard to radios, I have the best in my truck, and I never listen to it. I'd rather listen to the wheels turn. So 
Ooh, a purist, I, I, a purist. I love yeah, it. Go ahead. I, I feel very strongly that Android, that Apple, and so on will have a strong and profound influence on the car industry. However, at the end of five years, and keep in mind five years is only the length of business planning that most companies do, um, they won't be building cars. But the, the bottom line to, to the whole scenario is that five years from now, we're still going to be building cars. We're still going to be building trucks. We're still going to be building motorcycles. Because whether or not transportation is commoditized, whether or not transportation is uh, commoditized in such a way that we rent transportation rather than owning transportation, the fact is that that transportation still must be uh, designed, engineered, and built. So while we'll see some changes in the automotive industry, I think at the end of the day, in the next five years, we're still going to be building cars and trucks, and we're going to still continue to have this conversation. It will morph. It will change. But at the end of the day, General Motors, Ford, Fiat Chrysler, BMW, whoever, is still going to build transportation, and that's the way it will be, at least as long as fossil fuel exists. Thank you very much. We are out of time. Quick note, I watched the CMT Country Music Awards last night, and they had a sketch where they had Goober taxis instead of Uber. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Schwarzenegger was the driver, and he took in a very messy passenger with John Goodman in a beard and unwashed for days, and the little girls in the back seat were not too happy. I rest my case. John Ellis, thank you. Joe Barkai, thank you. Larry Stoley, thank you. I applaud you all. Dave Fowler, what a great panel. And by the way, I'm going to seal the three of you away and invite you to appear on Coffee Break with Game Changers for part three of this topic, and I'll send you an invite right after the show. Everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching watching whatever you're doing while we're on the air and shout out to Brad and the business channel team at world talk radio. I'm Bonnie D Graham. Be back next week with five new live shows on game changers radio presented by SAP. Here's my call to action. Very appropriate for today's show. Fasten your seatbelt. We didn't talk about that. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bye bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. And please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.